This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, wonderful to see everybody. Happy New Year. Um, are there folks that are here for the first time today? Okay, welcome. <clears throat> So, um, this morning I'd like to talk about uh, a particular um, type of practice in Buddhism um, called loving-kindness or Maitri uh, practice. Um, And uh, maybe sort of distinguish it from um, the, the sort of main practices of Zen or Soto Zen. Um... But I um, recently have been thinking a lot about um, Zenke Blanche Hartman, who is the the founder of this temple. And for some reason, I didn't know that when I came here. Um, I was surprised by that fact. Um, And uh, sometime after I came here, it occurred to me that the main chant that we chant together on Saturday mornings is the Loving-Kindness Sutra. Um, so I don't think these things are unrelated, that Blanche is the founder of this temple and the main chant is the Loving-Kindness Sutra. Um, so Zinke Blanche Hartman was the, um, a student of Suzuki Roshi's in San Francisco and... Um, the abbess of San Francisco Zen Center in the 80s, I think, 80s or 90s? Late 90s. Late 90s, okay. Um, And um, (coughs) when I I lived at uh, City Center, San Francisco Zen Center, which is where Blanche and her husband uh, Lou lived together for decades, um, towards the end of her life, um, she uh, would give regular Dharma talks, but um, and she was a you know a, f- uh, a funny, fierce, um, really eloquent and insightful person and teacher. Um, but in the last few years of her life, her talks were kind of always about loving kindness. Um, to the extent that the, the students who lived there kind of were like, oh, kind of, we started to roll our eyes, like, oh, Blanche is giving a talk today. It's going to be about this, you know. Um, and even towards the very end, she, she had this um, uh, news listserv, kind of email listserv that she got from, um, I don't know, gratefulness.org or something that daily would send her sort of... Um, quotes about loving kindness or, you know, kindness practice. Um, And so sometimes her talks would just be her sitting there with a a sheet where she'd type them all up and just sort of repeating the things that she'd, you know, been sent on this email Um, with very little commentary. It was just sort of like, (laughs) I'm just going to share these things that I enjoy with you, you know. Um, So, despite the eye-rolling or the kind of like, um, 
don't know, entitled sense of Zen student that I was or that we were, that we wanted to be entertained or kind of, you know, some elaborate kind of mental trip we wanted to go on with the teacher in her talk, you know. Um, it really struck me deeply that she was so sure, she was so convinced that, that all of Zen practice and Buddhist practice and life itself boils down to um, developing this sense of love and kindness and connection with other beings. Um, <clears throat> so are there folks who've never heard of loving-kindness practice? Oh, that's kind of impressive in itself. Um, <clears throat> So I think it's, um, it's been helpful for me when teachers um, that I've studied with have been very clear or um, very conscious about what kinds of, pra- like what do we do together as Zen students, you know, what, what are we doing um, and what kinds of practices are kind of deeply rooted in this tradition that we kind of enter into. Um, and without going too deeply into it, the primary, um, I would say the primary practice of Zen Buddhism is something called shikantaza, or um, which is translated as just sitting. Um, nothing but sitting. Um, so, uh, you know, it's hard to even talk about what that might look like because it's so different than our, um, our kind of doing activity, our doing mind. Um, but maybe just generally it involves kind of being completely present with whatever's happening and allowing it to kind of come and go uh, without uh, grasping or um, shifting or um, leading our experience. Um, <clears throat> and I do have um, trust in that primary practice that if we just open up to the reality we find ourselves in, both within ourselves and around us, as kind of one continuous activity, um, that we will become subtle, that we, we will become um, perhaps more at ease in our experience, um, that we will be uh, grounded in, in, in being present, and, and being present for ourselves and being present for other people. Um, <clears throat> And I kind of view other types of practices as um, a necessary aid in that process of settling into just this. So there's things that keep us from being present with ourselves and with other people. Um, and part of Zen is, is the thorough investigation of what, what are those things that kind of trip me up. Um, and uh, in that process of examining and understanding them, they, there's the possibility that they can kind of ease their, 
um, hold on us. So um, loving kindness practice to me is a, um, it's a directive practice. In a way we're kind of doing something. And in this way, it's, it separates a little bit from shikantaza, of this sort of radical, not doing anything, but being. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, it, I, I found it helpful to be clear on, you know, what kind of practice am I doing um, right now? So um, I think my encouragement or... Um, I think it's helpful to commit certain periods of zazen or certain times when we sit down to just kind of being as fully open and aware and present as we can be um, to kind of let go of all of the doing and unwinding. Um, But then it's good to be clear at certain times that... um, there are things that there are kind of activities or practices that can help my ability to open to that. Um, And for me, loving kindness has been primary in, in that. um, um, I think kind of soothing something that's um, um, active and kind of getting in my way in some way of, you know, just being. Um, so in other forms of Buddhism, there's, um, there's a distinction made between shamatha practice and vipassana practice. And shamatha is, is sort of stilling, calming. So that's, there's a kind of activity to that. Like I'm, this is, I'm intending to, um, find a way to settle with my own being, um, And then vipassana is insight or kind of in the settledness of being, in being present, a kind of new awareness can arise. Um, So in in other schools of Buddhism, there's a sort of kind of stated understanding of these two kind of wings of practice. In Zen, it's a little bit more um, under the radar or something. And I was actually surprised when I um, started practicing Zen that loving kindness was a practice that you know various teachers were encouraging me to do. Um, I thought, you know, no, you just just sit, you know, it's you know, um, that's something extra or something false. But I think the older I, I get, the more I um, understand that there's kind of facilities of being human that we have to kind of actively work with to um, arrive at being open and and kind of being available to all that is. Um, So in a way, our ability to navigate this path of um, um, kind of different types of practice is is a wisdom in itself. And I love this quote from um, Shinryu Suzuki. Um, one of the concepts that he brought to his students was this idea of new shin in Japanese, which is translated as soft, flexible, um, kind of pliant mind. So an ability to kind of flow with 
reality with my own experience, my you know, with other people, you know, if um, you know, suddenly life throws me something that wasn't in my plans, an ability to kind of roll with that. So that's new shin. He says, the important thing is to have a smooth, free-thinking way of observation. We have to think and observe things without stagnation. Our mind should be soft and open enough to understand things as they are. When our thinking is soft, it is called imperturbable thinking. This kind of thinking is very stable. It is called mindfulness. So he says we have to think and observe things without stagnation. Um, So this stagnation uh, or kind of blocked, hindered, there's lots of words in Buddhism to describe this kind of um, what, what, what is probably our usual state of mind, um, <laughs> um, but as it, it's sort of the alternative to being fully open and present. Um, so there's a line in the Heart Sutra that um, so the Heart Sutra itself that we chant you know, once a week here in English and again in Japanese um, is a distillation of, you know, a thousand page text on wisdom. Um, so it's, it's all kind of just symbolic phrases. There's a kind of nonsensicalness to the Heart Sutra. Um, and I think when I was first starting practice and maybe other people have had this experience, um, it didn't resonate with, it didn't kind of mean anything to me. And so I kind of, um, in a way I didn't hear it or, or take it in. There was nothing, there was nothing there. And that's kind of the point in a way. I mean, the, the whole Heart Sutra is, you know, no mind, no nose, no, 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 no. So there's like, don't try and grasp onto something or understand something. But there's one line or a couple lines that always, um, kind of gave me something to, to practice with. And in the middle of the sutra, it says, with nothing to attain. So after all this list of no mind, no... With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita. So we could spend a whole week talking about what prajna paramita is, but um, in shorthand, kind of wisdom, active um, ever kind of fluctuating and changing reality. So, with nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajnaparamita, relies on something that actually is always itself shifting and adapting. Thus, the mind is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. Um, so I think in part it speaks to my early experience of practice that um, fear was an issue. You know, fear was something that I was starting to recognize had been a part of my life. Um, and this line from the Heart Sutra was saying kind of definitively, um, 
without hindrance there is no fear without this blockage without this um, stagnation so that's I guess just to say that what I view or what my experience of loving kindness practice has been is to kind of work on this aspect of hindrance of of fear of um, stagnation in my own experience um And I want to, I'll talk a little bit like more about the, the practicalities of loving kindness practice, but I'll, I'll say, I'll just outline the very basic form of it, which is that we, um, we repeat a couple simple phrases. And one of the classical translations of, of this phrase is, um, may I be happy, may I, may I enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. And then the process of the loving-kindness practice is that um, often we start with ourself. So there's a kind of um, directing of attention to our own experience. And then gradually working out from there to people that it's actually easy for us to direct these kind and loving feelings towards, like a teacher or a grandparent. And then gradually a friend... And it, uh, we'll talk more about how it expands from there. But I thought <clears throat> maybe just for a moment we could try this one phrase. So, um, so f- kind of tuning into your own body. Um, sometimes it helps to actually roll my shoulders a little bit. There's a lot of tension that can be stored there. just sort of gradually casting our eyes downward, start to feel the sensations of breathing. So um, we can start by just noticing that I'm breathing in and then then I'm breathing out. Just in our body, kind of sensing the sensations that change as we breathe in and out. Gradually um, introduce this phrase silently to yourself. Just say, "May I be hap- uh, May I enjoy happiness and the root of happiness." And give a little space between kind of when we offer that to ourselves. Um, you know, after the phrase is over, to sit with: Is there a response in our experience? A resistance, a kind of warm or melting into that phrase, uh, no kind of reaction at all, maybe ambivalence or something. So this is a big part of the practice: is not demanding that we feel some way, but that offering a phrase, 
and then kind of experiencing the reaction or the result of that phrase. So I'll allow just a couple minutes to try this ourselves, but again the phrase is, may I enjoy happiness and the root of happiness, and then a pause, and then offer the phrase again. And then uh, gradually let go of the phrase itself and just return to the sensations of breathing, any feelings in your body. Notice, noticing if there's anything different um, after offering these phrases to yourself. to try that. Um, are there any impressions with that practice that people would like to share or, or questions about that? felt like an important part of the phrase recently to me. So, I, um, And I think even the word happiness can be difficult for people. Um, and uh, we have kind of lots of ideas about what happiness means. Um, 
And I think the term the root of happiness leads me back to a kind of deeper version of happiness than, um, than a kind of societal idea of happiness. Um, but also it speaks to this interconnection. So partly I think what we're um, hoping to uh, open to in loving kindness practice is a kind of wider connection to all beings. You know, and the gradually the practice goes from may I, you know, experience these things to may you, to may all beings in the universe experience this happiness. So when I... Uh, when I say may I enjoy the root of happiness, it's this sort of I, kind of um, spring, like a spring of water or, or fountain or something of the kind of pervasive happiness that is everywhere already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be useful other times besides sitting zazen, for example, when you feeling particularly negative or down mm-hmm. during the course of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be good to do that too. Absolutely. Traffic or, you know, people or Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, again then and thank you that that kind of um, reminds me that this practice um, you know is making this distinction between shikantaza and loving kindness practice or zazen and loving-kindness practice. And loving-kindness practice, I think, is actually kind of best practiced in environments other than the zendo, in a way. Like, um, it's helpful sometimes to try it in the zendo, but maybe not make that your primary practice when you come to zazen. But it's this practice that kind of um, is a bridge to um, our living, walking, interacting life. Um, outside of Zazen. Um, yeah, thank you. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want to acknowledge that this process or this practice um, can be difficult and can be difficult at the beginning to kind of access what is this feeling of love or this feeling of kindness. Um, and you know sadly there are you know even parts of myself but also I want to acknowledge people that I know or love that um, maybe were kind of raised in a certain way where they didn't actively feel kind of warmth from maybe their family or um and so this practice is as, asking us to tune in to some kind of interior knowledge of love or kindness. And perhaps we haven't had much experience with that in our life. Um, and this, and, and even just attempting this practice can kind of bring that into light for ourselves, which can be painful. Um, so uh, I want to offer a couple um, practices. So... Um, two people, if, you're, if you get interested in loving-kindness practice, Sharon Salzberg and um, Pema Chodron are two um, teachers who kind of really focus their teaching towards loving-kindness practice, and they have lots of wonderful advice. Um, 
but one of uh, I think Sharon Salzberg has a has some kind of a um, on tricycle you can go and, and sign up for some kind of class just uh, online. That's that's happening now. So. Okay, great. Yeah, Sharon Salzberg wrote this book called um, "The Revolutionary Art of Happiness." Is the subtitle, but the, the book itself is just called "Loving Kindness," and it actually is more broad than that. It, it, it it's a, a a really great introduction and um, instruction on the practice of all four Brahma Viharas, of which loving kindness is just one. Um, but the first stage, and, and Pema Chodron talks about this a lot, is before we can kind of develop this practice, you know, kind of offering love to ourselves and then widening that out, is we have to be able to touch some kind of warmth, some, some kind of feeling of love or in our own understanding. Um, and uh, often the suggestion is to kind of... Um, uh, think of your pet, you know. <laughs> um, either the love you have for your pet or the sort of adoration you get from your pet as a kind of like entry point to, oh, this might be what love feels like or something. Um, but even, you know, um, even if we can't access that or we don't have pets, um, Pema, Pema Chodron said, can you just imagine kind of walking outside on a, on a warm day and encountering the kind of um, the warmth of the sun and then kind of in, in your own practice, you know, allowing yourself to open to that warmth, to kind of receive it, um, to allow it to land within you and warm you. So at some very basic level, that can be an entry point into loving-kindness practice. Um, but yes, once we start down this path of loving-kindness practice, and um, there's a kind of initiation period, or was in my experience, of sitting there and offering these phrases and feeling completely silly about the whole thing. Like, what am I, you know what am I trying to tell myself and um, feeling inauthentic or something? Um, so, um, I, you know, I want to encourage people to kind of take up the practice for a few weeks or something and try and get past that initiation phase because I think then the practice comes alive in our life. And like you're saying, um, it's possible at some point that in the midst of kind of making some big mistake and having a kind of big self-judgment arise, some little voice starts offering kind of um, that reaction within me. Um, oh, may you be happy. May you be at ease. So, um, and I think this is true of establishing any kind of practice is that there's a a phase of just sort of faking it, you know, kind of like, okay, this is the instruction, I'll try that on. Um, and then if we stick with it, it kind of takes on a life of its own, okay? And then, yeah, we're standing behind somebody in the, um, the line at the supermarket, and they're kind of melting down at the cashier or something, and, and kind of without kind of consciousness, there's a sort of like, oh, I hope this person's okay, or like that they, 
um, find some ease in their life or something. And this is really the practice at work, how we start to see connections, how we start to see... Um, so uh, Pema Chodron talks about a Tibetan practice of... And I've heard this, that there's a, a famous practice of um, seeing everybody that you meet as, at some point in past lives, as having been your mother or somebody who cared for you deeply. So how would that change the way that I view the person at the cash register or the person getting upset with them um, to think, oh, they, they raised me and cared for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Katagiri Roshi says uh, something similar, like, can we see every being as Buddha? Um, So in a section of, um, specifically talking about repentance, Katagiri Roshi says, Repentance is to realize exactly the oneness of merging all sentient beings and Buddha, delusion and enlightenment. So this is non-duality, that that everything kind of exists together. Um, All sentient beings are allowed to live and are, from, from the beginning, forgiven for living their lives in this world. Everything, whatever it is, has some reason why it exists. Evil, good, even something neither evil nor good. You cannot destroy devils just because you don't like them. Even though you don't like monsters, there is still some reason why they exist. Everything is entitled to live in this world, in peace and harmony, beyond our judgment or our evaluation. This is the first condition we have to realize. Everything is Buddha. So repentance is another kind of practice that has the same goal of kind of um, staying with our kind of smallness of mind, our judgments, our kind of oh, that person shouldn't be here, or they shouldn't exist, or something, you know. Um, and to kind of melt that delusion and see that we all, we all belong here in some way. We all are here. So I'll share my my favorite Zenkei story. Um, I think I've told it a couple times recently, but um, even just coming into the room at the beginning of this talk and seeing her picture on the altar, um, yeah. So she she was um, she came to visit the Chapel Hill Zen Center when I was very new to practice, a couple years into practice, and. Um, 
did a weekend teaching and practiced with us and then would lecture or give classes. I think it was about a Dogen fascicle, I don't remember. And at one point she um, she stopped what she was reading, she put the book down and she looked over the table and we were all in a, in a room, a classroom, sitting in chairs and she looked, kind of leaned in and looked at all of us with this big grin. And she said, you don't know it yet, but you're all... Um, was the word sort of something like you're all stuck here you're all you're all in practice for good (laughs) Um, basically you've opened some door into practice and now you can't go back you know and um, there was a kind of glee in which she was telling us that even though the the message was a little bit frightening to me (laughs) like oh I've joined a cult or something like um or even some fear that I might awaken to something that I would want to kind of run away from or turn my back on or something. But um, the delight at which she can express that, you know, even something fearful, um, I think spoke to the, the depth of her own kind of love for practice and the love for us, you know. Um, we were kind of, we were on her team now too. Like we're all stuck in this thing called practice with her, and she was um, kind of excited about that, like glad for that. Um, so at uh, when when people start practice period at Tassajara Zen Mountain uh, Zen Mountain Center, um, often people are traveling from long distances and they come through the city or San Francisco city center. Um, and then the morning that the practice period starts, there's a couple vans that arrive at city center. You know, the students load in and drive into Tassajara to start the practice period. Um, and I lived at um, city center for three years with Blanche and every practice period that I was aware of, um, on that morning, they have a pancake breakfast for the students um, at City Center as a kind of celebration, sending people off to Tassajara. And um, once everybody's loaded in the vans um, uh, in the alley behind the building, Blanche would arrive, and um, sometimes she would say goodbye to people she knew, but she would just sort of stand there as this presence witnessing us kind of going off to Tassajara. And um, and I even remember kind of being in a van that pulled by her and kind of wanting to wave and say, you know, you know, and I felt very touched that she was there. Like, you know, there was nobody else from Zen Center or any other kind of teacher or person who sort of seemed to care that we were leaving, but Blanche, you know, Blanche was there. Um, but I remember trying to, like, wave and just, like, you know, she was in a kind of Jundo bow, you know, um, honoring our kind of commitment to go off and practice. Um, and then when I was, um, I returned to City Center in 2015 um, because I, uh, my teacher Paul was in, had invited me to be Shuso for a practice period which is a big honor in practice. And um, Blanche was, so I moved back into the building after I had left for a couple of years, and um, Blanche was still there, um, 
but she often used a walker. Um, she had to use this little electric seat that would take her from the first to the second floor. I think she was really struggling to be able to get down the stairs to the Zendo, which is in the basement. Um, and um, yeah, she was aging. But um, a few weeks into that practice period that I was living there, she had a really good day. And she just sort of put her walker to, against a wall and decided like she was walking everywhere. And there was this big grin, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, that she was kind of feeling good. And, um, and I, I remember stopping and chatting with her about it and um, feeling kind of pleased for her. And sadly, I think it was the next day she fell, um, partly I think because she wasn't using the walker and, and broke her hip, I think, or leg. Um, and was taken to a rehabilitation center and never moved back into city center. It was sort of, that was um, the start of her decline. Um, so at the ceremony, the Shuso ceremony, at the end of that practice period, um, which involves a, you know, you're sitting on this kind of platform and people are kind of, rapid style asking questions and you're responding and it's kind of this there's an element of combat to it um, they call it dharma combat so um, um, and then the people who have been through this before the former shusos um, sit to one side and at the end of the ceremony they offer their congratulations and sometimes it's a critique I mean there's um, they can be tough um, and it, and it goes in order of seniority. And so um, the last person to offer congratulations at the ceremony was um, Vicki Austin. Um, for those that know her, Shosan, Vicki Austin. Um, and she, she had been a really good friend of Blanche's and was sort of um, visiting her often and caretaking. Um, Blanche had moved to the rehabilitation center down the street. And <clears throat> the last... So she was the last person to speak, and she said, I have a note from Blanche. Um, and uh, somebody actually um, did a transcript of the ceremony, which was kind of a very sweet thing to do, and sent it to me. Um, and so Vicky reported that Blanche had said to her, uh, well, Blanche had said also, like, I'm... Blanche was on pain meds, which she, I don't think, wasn't used to. And so she was having trouble kind of, she wanted to kind of uh, offer something to, to me. And not personally, it wasn't like I was her favorite or anything. It's just like, this is who she is. Um, uh, she wanted to offer some congratulations, but was suffering with the kind of mm, disembodiment of, of pain medications. But somehow she managed to explain to Vicky that she, she said, I want to send my love and my deep regret that I couldn't be with you due to unexpected interference of various aspects of life. <laughs> Great congratulations. I'm sorry I don't have a question for you, she said. She was because of the pain and the medication. Um, but it was the highlight of the ceremony for me, the sort of um, the effort and the length she went to to express her love and appreciation. Um, 
So I think, um, to me, that was a direct benefit of her kind of lifelong practice in loving-kindness practice. Um, that there's a naturalness then to the way that we treat other people, or there can be. Um, a natural care um, and consideration. So, um, maybe I'll stop there, and if there are a question or two, um, let me know. I don't know if you remember this. The day that Blanche fell, Paul was giving a talk, Mm -hmm. and I guess he had walked by Blanche and seen her on the ground. Mm -hmm. And he said that, he was in the talk, he said, I just walked by Blanche and she was on the floor. Yeah, I remember that. And I said, Blanche, did you fall? And I guess Blanche had said, yeah, I fell. And now I'm seeing what the consequences are. I might have internal bleeding. I might have broken something. Mm -hmm. And Paul was using that as an illustration. um, But indeed, the consequence was her death, Mm -hmm. which it it is pretty moving to imagine her just lying there thinking, well, what's the consequence going to be? Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I forgot that part of the poem. I just want to say that I'm open to you know, further discussion about loving-kindness practice. If you have one of your own or you'd like to start, um, you know, let me know if I can help. So thanks for being here.